Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The usual two guests today. We'll hear from the education researcher and writer Frederick DeBoer about his new book, The Cult of Smart. And then Matthew Snyder will tell us about organizing a community land trust in the Inland Empire of Southern California. First, education. Frederick DeBoer, known to most people including me as Freddie, is a mostly retired internet celebrity whose day job is as an education researcher, teacher, and writer. He's just out with a new book, The Cult of Smart, How Our Broken Education System Perpetuates Social Injustice, published by All Points. His argument is that we need to rethink our obsession with smartness, narrowly defined, and its central role in distributing rewards in this society. To make this point, he relies on an argument about the heritability of intelligence that will make many uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. But some uncharitable, careless, or tendentious reviewers of the book, not all of whom have read it, I should say, have tried to conclude from this that DeBoer is some sort of scientific racist, on the model of Richard Herrnstein and Charles Murray's odious and deeply racist 1994 book, The Bell Curve. That's just not true, and outrageously so. Though again, some of the most vocal critics on the social media have not read the book, and have even vowed not to because they claim to know what's in it, even though they obviously don't. Freddie repeatedly says that he's talking about individuals, not races. There's no heritable difference in IQ between the races, and in fact, there's no such thing as race. I wish he'd focused instead on saying that people differ enormously in talents and preferences, and our society should be designed to minimize the inequality and rewards based on those characteristics. It's fun to read the right-wing reviews of the book, like the ones in the National Review and Wall Street Journal. They find it refreshing to see a leftist making some of these arguments, but then they stumble over his hatred of charter schools and his explicitly socialist politics. Anyway, his argument is worth listening to. Frederick DeBoer. Let's start with the title, Cult of Smart. What do you mean by that? By the Cult of Smart, I mean uh, the cultural and social ways in which we deliver the message, particularly to children, that the only thing that matters is your uh, academic ability, that uh, how smart you are, however broadly you want to define smart, or how good you are at school is a existential quality. It, it tells us about your value. That measure of smart uh, has a lot to do with uh, your outcome in the world we live in. Yes, that's true. And that's the the other plank of the book. So in addition, and I think probably this is probably causal. In other words, I think the cult of smart in terms of the social and cultural aspects are determined uh, in large measure by the economic situation. So very famously, in the last few decades of the 20th century, the uneducated labor market collapsed. So the ability to get a job without a college degree that allowed you to live the good life, to own a home, own a car, uh, raise children, etc., that job started to disappear um, through a combination of globalization and automation. The fab- fabled sort of factory at the edge of town job where many, many people built a qu- high quality lives off of, that, that began to disappear. And the, the college wage premium grew more robust over time. And uh, increasingly, uh, it became impossible if you're not a star athlete or, a, or an actor or a musician uh, to secure the good life without a college diploma. That likely um, is part of the reason why we so insistently uh, tell our children that their value is the same as their academic ability. Now, the ideology among a large portion of the population is that we now live in a meritocracy. We've gone from the days when entry into Yale was hereditary, and now it's all sorted by merit, not pedigree. Whether that's true or not, we at least claim to aspire to that situation. Is that a good thing? Uh, no, I mean, I say, you know, one of the things I say in the book is I do agree with many liberal and leftist critics of meritocracy in saying that it is not a real meritocracy. There are structural inequalities for people from racial minorities, for women, for people from uh, sexual and gender minorities, uh, from people from other countries other than the United States, etc. They all face impediments to participation in the meritocracy uh, and uh, systematic biases. But even if that ceased to be the case, if tomorrow the meritocracy became fair, it would still be an unspeakably cruel thing. Because as soon as you acknowledge that there are some aspects of your 
performance within school and within the meritocracy that are outside of your control, the meritocracy becomes something that's hard to justify morally. We believe that systems of reward are valid so long as the individuals within that system of reward can control their outcomes in it. But if you believe that there are factors uh, in children and in, and in college kids and in everyone within the meritocracy that we don't actually control about ourselves, that we have differing potentials and that we have different sets of skills that we're good at and things that we're bad at, then the concept of the meritocracy becomes just a different kind of entrenched aristocratic sort of a system. Now, this is, uh, takes us to uh, what uh, causes you to be uh, or this book to be so controversial you believe that a lot of the differences in our abilities are wired in through genetics. Could you make that argument? Yeah, I mean, I, I do. Uh, as I will say in a minute, I think that it's also, uh, you can also accept a lot of my argument without accepting the genetic half. But certainly, um, I think that the field of behavioral genetics has demonstrated that your uh, academic outcomes, how well you perform in school using uh, measures like numbers of years of education, for example, which turns out to correlate with all sorts of other academic outcomes. Those factors are influenced by your genetic parentage so that um, smart parents are more likely to have smart kids. And again, we can define smart however you want. I mean, for my purposes, when I say smart, I just mean the kind of academic ability that's marketable in, in liberal capitalism. But uh, there is a, a, a really large research literature based on this. It's important to say that this is about individuals, not about races. So the majority of people, almost everyone in this field of behavioral genetics, does not uh, believe in the idea that, for example, black people are genetically inferior. But rather, they're talking about our individual capacities, so about parentage, our individual parentage. It would explain a very basic dynamic that is, in my opinion, inarguable which is that when we observe education, we find that uh, people sort themselves into ability bands very early in life, and they tend to stay in those ability bands throughout their life. For example, at, at kindergarten, we can make strong predictions about how children will perform in school in third grade. Third grade, we can, if we just use their reading group, if we just look at what level of reading group uh, students are in in third grade, that is a meaningful predictor of whether they'll attend college or not. So from a very early age in life, we know pretty well how old people are going to do in school. Are there individual exceptions? Of course there are. But at scale, people tend to sort themselves into one ability band and stay there. Now, people would say that that whole scaling, the bands, the tracking, all that stuff is self-reinforcing. So if you get started on one path early in life, the whole system just reinforces those judgments as you go along. That's true. And, I, you know, there's a, a phenomenon referred to as the Matthew effect in education. It's a reference to the to the Bible verse that says, you know, that he who has not shall have even what he has taken from him and to he who has shall be given even more. And we should remain cognizant of that fact. But you got to be careful uh, in the way that we talk about these things, because if you give people, if you ascribe people a lot of agency within uh, the system and you say, you know, they can move around as they wish, then you're justifying uh, liberal capitalism. I certainly believe that tracking programs can have uh, negative outcomes. On the other hand, uh, so tracking or, or streaming, depending on the language one uses, uh, putting students on a particular track at a particular point in their academic career. There are other countries where streaming or tracking has the opposite effect, which is that it works better for everyone. So Germany, for example, though it's controversial even there, students are placed on in either a vocational or an uh, academic track uh, in, in what we would call junior high school here. And in fact, they have pretty strong outcomes for both. So I, I don't deny that there are the influence of pre-existing prejudices against kids who have previously done poorly. But it is the case that, again, if you give students uh, an IQ test that is uh, intended to be culture-free, so for example, there's what's called Raven's Progressive Matrices, which is in order to lower the cultural element is a test that is, uses all pictures, there's no words. Those tend to be stable properties over the course of their life. And again, there's, there's plenty of exceptions. Sometimes students, high-performing students, you know, their parents have a divorce and their academic life falls apart. Sometimes a kid who performs poorly meets a new mentor who helps them a lot. Even that, I think, is a reason not to sort of buy into the meritocratic picture because 
Uh, so many things ultimately go into whether someone succeeds in, in school, and we can only control for however many of them. There's a big portion of the variance in any uh, research that we don't know how to ascribe, that we don't know where it, where it comes to. And so if, if that's the case, then again, saying that you, know, you, you belong where you deserve to be at the end of the day in your meritocratic career uh, is difficult to, to justify. When we talk about the heritability of IQ or intelligence, or if IQ measures intelligence effectively, there is the Flynn effect, the rise in IQ scores over time. Uh, if intelligence were so heritable, why do we see this uh, over the decades? So it's really important to say that James Flynn is a hereditarian. So he, he does not disagree with the general uh, heritability of intelligence argument. Uh, in his book, Does Your Family Make You Smarter? He makes that very clear. Uh, and he has denied the idea that the Flynn effect undermines the heritability of intelligence. Think about it this way. You can have any influence uh, on uh, people's uh, outcomes and still have an underlying genetic basis underneath that, right? So uh, the Flynn effect probably com comes from the fact that we live in um, just massively more intellectually and cognitively stimulating times than we did in the past, that now that you know, with, with formal schooling and with newspapers and crossword puzzles and just all the ways in which we use our minds now in ways that we didn't before, that may have um, inspired people to, to reach higher. But that wouldn't change the fact that if you look at the Flynn effect, which affects everybody, that there is, could still be underlying genetic variation. So in other words, the very fact that the Flynn effect affects everybody is not a, uh, an argument for heritability being untrue. It's an argument for heritability being true. In other words, because p some people are, uh, are raised up from the bottom to a little bit above the bottom, other people are raised up from the top to even higher uh, up at the top, but there's still that inequality. If you still look out at a sea of people who have different and uh, unequal educational outcomes, um, there's no reason to assume that everybody getting smarter means that your smarts have nothing to do with your genes. Okay, so the bell curve question. Uh, a lot of people who are critical of your book treat you as Charles Murray in Marxist disguise. What about the bell curve question? Fundamentally, the, the, the basic point of the bell curve is the idea that people who uh, don't succeed well intellectually uh, can't be helped. And the entire point of my book is to say that people need to be helped and that we can do so. The political outcome of the observation is completely different. People, you know, have, have said it's eugenicist, but the eugenicists wanted to make intelligence an even more uh, important uh, aspect of people's lives. They wanted to create a hierarchy of the intelligent where, you know, at the top were the, the philosopher kings uh, who were the smartest and then you with a sliding scale going down. That's exactly the opposite of the position of the book, which is that we should start to tear down the system which already rewards people based on their intelligence. I mean, the thing that I that frustrates me is we already have a system that is sorting people the way that uh, the way that the liberal critics say that they don't want. My solutions, my my propositions for how to change things, uh, are things that could actually change the situation where we already have a cult of smart, where we already have reward distributed by uh, intellectual ability. And I want to change that. So it, it, it's just the, the, the fundamental observation of the book is different. And as I said before, Hernstein and Murray entertain the racist idea that uh, black people are less intelligent than white. And I don't. In fact, uh, the, the, one of the recurring notes uh, from the publisher when I was editing the book was that I was too repetitive in denying race science. So uh, to me, the comparison does not seem particularly responsible. So how do you explain racial achievement gaps in education? There is a racial achievement gap. It's not at all racist to say so. Barack Obama is someone who repeatedly lamented the race, racial achievement gap. Black and Hispanic students do worse on a variety of metrics. And the question is why? Again, the, the race scientists say, well, everyone wants to call it poverty. But when we look at the parents' income level and we put that into our regression, we find it doesn't explain that much. But that to me is an extremely narrow vision of what we mean when we talk about white supremacy and the kind of biases against black and Hispanic students. So, um, yes, parents' income matters. But, for example, exposure to lead, we know that even at the same income band, black children are more likely to be exposed to lead in childhood. And we know that lead exposure 
results in negative academic outcomes. Prematurity, black babies are more likely to be born premature or severely low birth weight, and we know that that is associated with a significant academic disadvantage. There is the, the presence of unequal discipline in schools so that black students are more likely to be suspended for the same offenses. The point is, is the racial achievement gap is not one thing. It's not like it's not the product of one of one difference. It's the product of a whole suite of different ways in which black and white students live their lives and a whole set of disadvantages that are laid on the feet of black people that can't be adequately explained just by looking at their uh, parents income gap. Wouldn't you have saved yourself a lot of trouble by uh, really not bringing up genetics and just say people have different endowments and interests uh, and talents, and we need to structure a society that makes it humane for everyone, regardless of those talents, wherever they come from? Yeah, I mean, I would have saved myself a lot of trouble, and I, I, and I have started to regret not doing that. I wanted to be rigorous, and I was afraid that if I simply made the proposition, look, different people have different baseline abilities, that people would say, well, you're not justifying that in any way. What's your evidence that that's true? I, I am certainly now kind of wishing that I had simply gone that route. But uh, at the time, it's, it was important to me that, um, that I be demonstrating rigor and that I be justifying uh, that major element of the argument. I'm speaking with Frederick DeBoer, author of The Cult of Smart from All Points Books. In a society structured as hierarchically as ours is, how can we isolate what people's inborn aptitudes are from what has been shaped by their environment? Can we possibly know that? Well, I think that, that I would invert the question a little bit, which is that, yes, of, of course, there's a great deal of inequality in our system. But that doesn't mean that uh, everybody would have the same ability to do theoretical physics if, uh, if, the, if there was no uh, impediments. I was a disaster at math and science throughout school. I never went an, uh, a semester in high school without failing a math or a science. I usually failed both. I had a, a hard uh, life uh, throughout high school, but that, after I had graduated and was on my own and in, in college, I continued to struggle in uh, algebra class, even though I tried very hard. And at some point, uh, it became clear to me that I had a, a different level of ability, uh, that I didn't have what some of my peers had. And that was true to me, despite the fact that, again, I, as, you, as you said, people go through a lot and there's lots of things that are influenced their academic uh, outcomes. I know that that was true of myself. I'm a cancer orphan and uh, high school was a particularly uh, tough time for me. The way that I would sort of invert the question, though, is to say, if we look at just people who, what they choose to do in terms of their academic backgrounds and what they choose to do when it comes time to, to select a major or what they choose to do when it comes time to, to choose an elective in high school. There are people, a lot of people who don't want to do the physics class or the algebra class or the organic chem class, but are constrained and forced to do so um, by the requirements of their high school or their college. Temperament and desire are as much as an important part of our inborn sort of selves as our aptitude. And so, sure, there are, there are people in the society today who are not being well served and who would probably succeed more academically under a more equal society. And that's what the whole second half of the book is about, is how to build that society. But even uh, if we equalize everything, there's going to be people who have more or less uh, ability at certain subjects and more or less interest in certain subjects. One of the, the things that inspired me to write the book is, you know, I taught college for 10 years and the number of students I talked to who uh, didn't want to be there, who would just straight up tell me, I don't want to be in college, but who felt that they had no choice because the alternative was uh, economic misery. That's the sort of thing that I'm trying to save from the system, that it's a terribly inefficient thing when people who don't want to succeed in a particular field are forced to do so. So that means that I want to loosen standards. So I think that um, students should be able to avoid things like algebra requirements, which have huge negative impacts in terms of students uh, failing out and dropping out. Uh, and I want um, people to be able to uh, craft far more in, sort of individual paths through high school and college than they're able to do now uh, in order to loosen standards and make things more efficient for everyone. Now, if we were able to realize the liberal dream of equality of opportunity, we'd still have a society that was profoundly unequal. Is that your argument? Yeah. Look, equality of opportunity uh, is meaningless once you acknowledge that there's any factor at all that's unchosen. So again, throw out genes. Let's just, let's just throw it out. Let's say that there's no student side factors at all. 
Does that mean that we can therefore control for everything? Uh, no, of course not. Like I said, um, my academic outcomes in high school were deeply influenced by some negative personal events that uh, no one could control. We just don't even know how to begin to enumerate all the parts of the environment that potentially change how people do in school. I just find equality of opportunity to be a red herring. Equality is often associated with Marxism, but both Marx and Engels independently arrived at the, at the conclusion that equality is a meaningless political goal. Because as soon as two people are different in any way, forget about putting them on an academic hierarchy, but as soon as two people are simply different uh, in, in a basic sense of who, who they are, what they like, what their personalities are, they've immediately violated equality of opportunity. Suppose you, you created that perfectly equal opportunity for everyone. There's still going to be a system of, sister, of, of uh, winners and losers. And my question personally is why should performance in that arena determine whether or not you end up you know, on disability in some uh, rust belt city that's uh, falling apart and addicted to Oxycontin? Even if we believed that the process through which we selected people into these different roles was fair, you're still talking about a system that leaves people at a level of destitution that we should reject out of hand, no matter how well they do. And now, uh, liberals also point to mobility as an ideal. How's that as an antidote to inequality? Yeah, I find the, the obsession with uh, mobility deeply weird. The first thing is that economic mobility from the view of the system. So if we're looking at the system from a thousand feet and trying to make decisions about what we want, everyone's uh, relative movement within the system results in relative movement down, right? In other words, every time someone moves up, then other people are left behind. If you take one, you know, who is uh, a hedge fund manager and who makes hundreds of millions of dollars, if you suddenly cast him down into uh, poverty on a certain emotional sense that is satisfying, but uh, from the point of view of the system, someone else has just moved up relative to, the, to him uh, in terms of uh, how they're doing with economic mobility. It's, it's just not clear to me why we would fa favor the interests of one group of people over the other when we're talking about moving things around. And when people talk about economic mobility, they're usually not talking about a complete changing of the ranks because that is unlikely to happen. But they are talking about individual people rising up. It's a, a beautiful story that they like to tell. But the problem with rising up from the ranks, if you have some poor black kid from Chicago's inner city who – uh, rises up out of poverty with uh, into uh, you know an Ivy League school and eventually a job at Goldman Sachs. The problem with that is that if you rise up from the ranks, you're leaving the ranks behind, right? Like ec economic mobility is all about these individual stories of people who overcome. But what about all the people who don't overcome? It just doesn't make sense to me as a societal goal. It seems that there are a lot of people on the left who resist the idea that um, there are profound differences in people's talents. Is that the problem you're, you're confronting? I mean, it is one of them, yeah. Some of the reaction to the book has just been sort of, well, you know, we can imagine a, a more perfect world where we don't have any inequalities in how people perform. I don't know what that would look like. I don't know how the system would handle it. But it's kind of a moot point because that's nothing like what we see, right? We have invested as a country hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. The, the work of huge armies of teachers, principals, researchers, etc. cetera. Uh, we've dedicated our whole policy apparatus to making everybody perform well academically, and it's been a huge disaster. So I, I, you know, I point to No Child Left Behind as being the epitome of what I see as the problem, which is No Child Left Behind had a goal that within 12 years of the law being passed, literally all students would be proficient according to their standards of their state tests. Also, every year there had to be improvement. In other words, uh, next year's five, uh, fifth graders have to do better than this year's fifth grader every single year. It was a total disaster. The Obama administration had to grant an immense number of, of exemptions because uh, so many uh, schools were nowhere close to doing it. And this law was such a disaster that at the height of the war between Obama and congressional Republicans, when they could agree on absolutely nothing, they were still able to come together and uh, put together a bipartisan bill to end No Child Left Behind. 
when liberals say that they can imagine a world without uh, where everyone does well academically, they're they're basically adopting the same point of view as George W. Bush did uh, during his presidency, which is the notion that the only thing that constrains us is our will. All of our experience tells us differently. All of our experience tells us that there's always going to be a distribution of students no matter what, that every time we've ever looked at education in any context, we've always been able to sort better from worse in terms of performance. And so I want people to say, what if that's always going to be true? What if it's always going to be true that some students are going to do better than, than others? You could go the uh, libertarian route and just say, hey, it's the, it's the law of the jungle and whoever survives, survives. I would like to, to do the opposite, which is to say, if the game is rigged for certain people, then let's lower the stakes of the game by improving the outcomes for people who, who fail academically. Let's create a society where with a more uh, redistributive social safety net, uh, people's uh, fundamental ability to secure the good life is less impacted by a rigged academic game. Okay, and finally, we expect a lot of schools, probably too much, that they're going to be able to um, heal a lot of the wounds of a deeply classed and hierarchical society. But that in mind, what would uh, schooling look like in your utopia, or even something more achievable than utopia? The question of the sort of the culture is sort of built into this. In other words, if we stopped treating uh, school as being the most important thing in the life of a young person and uh, insisting that everyone has to succeed or else they're going to be left behind, we will have more sane policies. I, I look at a, an example like Finland. Finland has, by many metrics, the best academic outcomes in the entire world, and yet it is perfectly common for a Finnish five-year-old to not know how to read. They're able to combine academic excellence with a really laid-back attitude in the early years to how uh, students are going about reading. And so, uh, so uh, if we could adopt an attitude like that, then we could stop doing things like testing students at ridiculously early ages. In fact, getting rid of standardized state-standardized tests altogether. As I said before, dramatically loosen standards. Uh, in the book, I quote uh, the math myth by Andrew Hacker, and uh, he's an economist who shows that uh, algebra requirements absolutely wreak havoc with high school students and college students. So let's eliminate the algebra requirements, give students a much broader sort of quantitative literacy requirement that they can fill with a statistics class. I also think that we should be working really hard to end the stigma of vocational programs, that we should be giving students the options and the opportunity to go into the trades earlier in life so that they can get trained up and receive certification in high school rather than after, which would save them money. Uh, and uh, so we could build out those programs and also work really hard to try to end the stigma of them as for being for dummies. And finally, I think that a system that makes more sense uh, than the system that we have now is a system that recognizes that there's going to be a normal distribu distribution of outcomes in most metrics, and that's okay, that we have principals who can look at a, a, a class's grade distribution and recognize that a student with lower grades is not necessarily a failure on the part of a teacher, but is but might reflect that student's academic potential and that the fact that that student may find other things to do with that they like that they want to in their lives, that there are other uh, paths forward that are valid than the academic path. And have a society where that distribution did not uh, result in extreme poverty and extreme wealth. Exactly. Uh, a, a society where because we recognize that nobody can control how well everyone does at school, right? parents can't perfectly control their kids, teachers can't perfectly control their students, Schools can't perfectly control their students, and students themselves can't perfectly control their own outcomes. Many kids try as hard as they can and still fail. And if we acknowledge that fact, then we can say, isn't it stupid to tie the ability to avoid poverty to these outcomes? Shouldn't we be focusing on different metrics and on other things? That was Frederick DeBoer, author of The Cult of Smart, How Our Broken Education System Perpetuates Social Injustice from All Points Books. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break.
was some of Return by Eno and Hyde from the Innocent Untroubled Year 2014. Next, Community Land Trusts, specifically one in the Inland Empire of California. Community Land Trusts, a.k.a. CLTs, are non-profit community-based organizations designed to ensure collective stewardship of land. They can be developed in several ways, but the most prominent use is housing, with the intention of ensuring long-term affordability and preventing displacement and gentrification. In a CLT, the trust acquires land, and since it's not cheap to do that, it usually requires some sort of government or philanthropic support. Instead of conventionally selling the housing built on that land, the trust typically enters a long-term lease with the occupants. When people want to move, the property reverts to the trust, with the occupants typically only receiving a portion of the appreciated property value. The trust keeps the rest, preserving affordability. According to the Community Wealth website, there are 277 CLTs across the U.S. Here's one of the organizers of an embryonic CLT in the Inland Empire of California, Matthew Snyder. He's a lecturer in the writing program at the University of California, Riverside, and is co-host of the podcast The Future is a Mixtape. As you'll hear, this trust has some more ambitions than the traditional CLT. Matthew Snyder. Let's start by uh, describing the region. What is the Inland Empire? Um, it's like flyover country in California. I jokingly and affectionately say this because I love my region. Having lived here now for 20 years, you have no choice. It's like a family member. But uh, it's basically, I say it's like the New Jersey of Southern California. So we're we're sometimes called the, you know, the great unwashed because we're we're between the desert and the coastal communities, right? LA and Huntington Beach and Irvine and Orange County, what we sometimes call the Orange Curtain. And the Inland Empire is comprised largely of massive warehouse distribution centers. So it's pretty stunning, but basically CBR, you know, this the largest commercial real estate service in the in the in the world, says about twenty percent of all the distribution leasing that's been going on has been happening just in the Inland Empire. So we have Amazon, we have Skechers, we have, you know, every type of business that deals with distribution. And something like 50% of all of the materials that come off of Long Beach and LA ports are gobbled up by Southern California consumption. So what's happened is um, because of unionization drives in the past, we've become the go-to place to move unionization away from these distribution centers because we're needy and desperate. So we're an area that also gets a tremendous amount of pollution. So other than Dallas and Houston, we have some of the worst air in the country. Um, so we have uh, high rates of childhood asthma. And so we're getting pollution because of this inland area kind of pulls in a lot of the pollution from LA County. Um, we also are a major site for distribution centers. So at the same time it has that, it has you know UC Riverside, which is a, one of the major u- university systems for the UC system. So that's kind of the region. It's, it's both uh, high end in some sense that it has a, a major university here in Riverside, but it also has these massive distribution centers. We're not, you know, the Coachella Valley, which is farther out near Palm Springs, which, you know, uh, which is, is even more ignored. But it's it's like, I think, this general transition in California. 40% of people de- defi- de- define themselves as Latino or Latinx. And on top of that, our region's heavily Latino. Um, and so uh, the, the, the circumstances are changing in this region. It's, you know, it's not like it's, you know, the movie E.T. where a bunch of white kids are lined up. And so we are increasingly more immigrant, more diverse, but we're also being massively exploited by these distribution centers. And I'm guessing that means a lot of low-wage, insecure jobs. Absolutely. Lots of subcontracting and all of those sorts of things. An example of the total nefarious greed is there's a guy named Ido Benzivi who's a um, you know kind of real estate magnate and supplicant of the ruling class who's a speculator. And he wants to build something called the World Logistics Center, which is uh, to give you the enormity of the size, this logistics center for distribution. Now, he's just a speculator, so he's on the front end of that. And it would be 760 football fields big, and 14,000 trucks will go into a city, sister city called Marina Valley uh, a day. So uh, we're talking massive levels of pollution, and it's being fought back by the Sierra Club and other organizations, as well as CCAEJ, uh, Center for Community Action and, and Environmental Justice, a famous organization here by Penny Newman. And so... Um, it's really a crap show, really. I mean, uh, we don't have much of an economic future here. And we're not like other parts of the country where we're, we're not completely divorced from capital, but we're getting the leftovers of LA. What used to be there before all these uh, logistics and distribution uh, centers came in? It's kind of historically been a bedtown community. At Riverside itself, the city, 
was a, a, a famous site of abolition and also was the place of the Naval Orange. So um, we have the first Naval Orange in the United States here at Riverside Hospital here. And it was a ma major producer of Naval Oranges. In fact, this is one of the, what was one of the richest areas in the country back in the days before Naval Orange production, orange production started moving to Fresno, California. Um, so it was a major wealthy place. And if you go to our downtown, we have some very beautiful Mission Revival, probably famous for the largest amount of Mission Revival architecture. And the Mission Inn is a famous hotel that has- Yeah, I actually a, stayed uh, there. It's Christmas. quite a pile of rock. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And so we're kind of like a sub-desert, nestled in between the, the actual desert and the ma major metropole of LA. And people forget, you know, it's actually fairly urban here. I mean, uh, 20 million people in terms of California's population is just in Southern California. Did you have fires there? I mean, how you be affected by climate yeah, we, change? We were near Yucaipa, which uh, Yucaipa is a more a rural area of Riverside. It's, it's a suburb of a suburb, kind of an exurb, an exurb of San Diego or Riverside. But we had a gender reveal party <laughs> so, at Yucaipa that caused a massive fire. We were not as bad as other areas because we're between LA and Yucaipa, but we we did have orange haze, not as bad as San Francisco, which looked like Blade Runner 2049. But but yeah, we, we've had fires. We, we are worried about them. And so uh, what are you trying to do with your community land trust? I'm someone that really advocates for a dual power notion of social change. So what we're bent up against is trying to actually build what's being called community wealth, right? Which is uh, socialism from bottom up uh, using civic engagement. And I'm involved with several organizations and activists. I was involved with the anti-war movement in 2003 as a graduate student at UC Riverside when I was in the English department. Then got involved in Occupy Riverside which was the largest occupy, occupation outside of Los Angeles. So we're about a city of 330,000, and we had the largest occupation outside of LA. We actually had an encampment and all those sorts of things. And I kind of realized at some point that as exciting as Occupy was for, for, for social change and for ringing that bell to the 1% versus the 99%, that we were essentially doing a dollhouse version of what it would be if we actually had power. And you had you know your library center, you had your task force for community peace, you had a kitchen area. So you had all the kinds of things that you'd have in a house, but also in a city. And we really didn't know our city council members, really didn't know political power in, in manifest as it existed within the police state and also land developers. So it's been an emergent idea that what happens with Occupy is even when the left fails, it creates new organizers. And so me, uh, Jeff Green and Mara Bonina started over the over time to come up with the notion that we should create a community land trust and things build off of national movements. So in 2016, which I was very involved as a grassroots organizer for Bernie Sanders, Slate Magazine had an article about CLTs. I had never heard of them. It blew my mind in the article because it actually talked about building bottom-up socialism and decommodifying housing as a human right. One of the things we miss out on as a society, especially among the left, is what is socialism? And that's like the end-all, be-all. But on my podcast, The Future is a Mixtape, we talk about the idea that the utopian socialist horizons really built on decommodifying basic human rights, what we sometimes call basic necessities. So the right to food, the right to shelter, the right to health care, and the right to education. So we call that the golden square. And to me, I'm a more pluralist notion of what socialism should be, is that food, shelter, health care, and education should move towards decommodification. It's an extension of the golden rule. And so housing is one of those necessary human rights that shouldn't be based on whether you're, you're quote unquote lazy or whether or not you have a job. It's just a human right. There's no reason why we're the only animals that have to pay rent to live. And so the notion of housing as a, a nesting doll for social change is important because I'm involved in my local DSA chapter, Democratic Souls of America and Inland Empire, and I'm trying to organize a housing group with other friends so that they're on board and our C CLT is pretty different. And that CLT, I should define as... Yeah, I was going to ask you that. What is a CLT? Yeah, so Cumulant Trust essentially is a co-ownership structure. And so what it is, is the nuts and bolts in the most basic sense is that um, the occupant owns the house, but there's a ground lease relationship that's where the CLT, basically this nonprofit owns the land beneath you. So it's either a 99-year lease or whatever. And so what ends up happening is... 
Now, I should point out that the land is really where the speculative values happen. Um, the, what's built on it is much less important. Absolutely. For and you can, you can see this in places like um, Long Beach or Huntington Beach, where they'll plow over on these coastal communities. They'll plow over these really tiny homes because they, they bought, the, bought it for the speculative value of that you know, ocean view and are building these things above. And so, yeah, absolutely. I mean, 50% of capitalism is really tied up with real estate. And so um, it's our, really our original sin is this relationship with property. And we're living on indigenous land in California, which was a very diverse indigenous community of Native Americans. And so we have to get back to that problem, which is land, right? Um, our history is taking people, African-Americans and turning them into property and then turning the land and using manifest destiny as a form of the American dream. And so we have to get back to pulling out that speculation. And in the Slate article, it talks about Bernie Sanders Community Land Trust, uh, which is called the Burlington Community Land Trust, but now it's called Champlain uh, Community Land Trust. And it's worth about $144 million. And it's the most successful CLT in the country. And what it does is it provides grants. Now, he, he engineered this when he was mayor of Burlington? Yeah, in 1984. So he was actually initially opposed to it because he was like, I think any decent person saying, well, most Americans don't have their money in real estate. They have it in their houses. And um, when my dad died, that was pretty much all we had was the sale of the house. And so Bernie was initially opposed to it. But then, you know, through discussion, this is what, why Bernie's so good is you can talk him into things from the left. He became a huge backer and endorser and he gave $200,000, which was quite a sum back in 1984 for this municipal nonprofit structure to form. And it's been the, it won a world habitat award in 2008. And it's one of the great really socialist traditions in the United States. And it's one of the least talked about things of Bernie Sanders is that he started that up. I'm speaking with Matthew Snyder, one of the organizers of the inland equity community land trust in California. So what's, what's the idea um, people own the house, but not the underlying land. So uh, how's the ownership treated? Um, how, how are transactions in the, in the housing treated? So essentially what the idea of this is that it's, it's a cooperative economy. So we take care of each other. Someone in the house um, pays uh, either a, a, like kind of a rent own, but not like a credit card, like uh, actually to build institutional power. So you can rent to own an apartment or a house and it, you'll own it. And you can give it to a family member, but in many cases, what happens is, is the Cumulant Trust has the first right to buy it back. And what ends up happening is as gentrification and speculation occur, the Cumulant Trust uh, couples all of that profit and basically gives out grants. So the house has actually become cheaper each time it's bought and resold, which sounds totally crazy, right? Because the grants are given back out to the the to the people to be able to purchase them at a way that's affordable. And so it creates permanent affordability for people that are moving in. And not only that, but some Cumulant Trusts have kind of housing insurance schemes. So if you lose your job, um, they'll help cover your actual payments. So remarkably, anywhere from, depending on which study, anywhere from 10 to 30 times less likely a renter or owner will be able to be shoved out of their house if it's in a cooperative land trust. So people are less likely to foreclose by 10 to 30 times in that arrangement. And what it does, and I think this is important too, is we can't just all be about the electoral form. We have to actually build civic engagement. And what's good about a land trust is it builds permanent civic engagement. And um, people can actually work in their community and in the, they're more likely to show up to meetings. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, Doug, you don't, not a huge fan of meetings, but <laughs> If, if we can get people to care about their local community and imagine together as a cooperative, a socialist horizon where we imagine what our community looks like, we can change a lot of things. And one of the other things about King Land Trust is it can obliterate racial and gendered hierarchies in our society because you can do a racially inclusive uh, housing uh, in, and, and income inclusive housings where you can have people of different mixed incomes, not this crappy 10% of the working class gets these condos, but actually where you fully integrate your society and fully house it. And at the same time, obliterate the distinctions because we've been dealing with this forever. I mean, Henry Louis Gates within the first year of Obama's presidency was racially profiled because he didn't look like someone who lives in that area, right? And Penny Newman's campaign, she's a kind of the Bernie Sanders and part of CCAJ, which I mentioned earlier, environmental group. She was running a campaign and, and two African-American men, one middle-aged, one youth, 
um, we're in Corona, which is kind of this mini Orange County that's close to Orange County. We call it the Orange Curtain, right? Because it's like blocking everybody out of their wealth. And they were racially profiled in Corona because Corona doesn't have African-American people living in that city. And so they don't look like they're from the community. And so these anecdotes and, and histories of racial profiling is deeply tied to the fact that we have highly segregated housing. And the communal land trust isn't just to me a way of building homes for middle-class people, but it's a way to kind of decommodify housing partially, much like Medicare for all, where you're not getting rid of all of the entire speculative commodity features, but you're decommodifying it. Um, and this is where Cooperation Jackson. Yeah, I was just about to ask you, you, you mentioned when we were messaging yesterday that you were inspired by Cooperation Jackson. So what have you learned from them? Well, I have to thank you, Doug, because I'm a huge fan of your show and you had an episode on uh, November November 2017 with Brooke Harrington on you know Capital Without Borders. And then you had Kali Okuno talk about uh, green municipal socialism. And I, I had heard of Co Cooperation Jackson occasionally from left circles, from other activists, but I really was inspired by that and picked up the book Jackson Rising. And from that conversation you had with him, I was like, oh shoot, we can actually have a much more radical vision of what CLTs do because the problem with communal land trust is they can become very provincial. They can be just a block. They don't have a, a, a utopian horizon. What, what he talks about in that first 40, he has a first chapter. It's worth every dollar just for the first 40 pages called build and fight. And in the first chapter, he talks about creating kind of these co cooperative institutions, left institutions in your city. So like uh, regenerative agriculture, uh, cooperative worker cooperatives, consumer cooperatives, um, and a community land trust, as well as notions of radical public banking. And what ends up happening is, is for me, it's like, how can we take this and have a socialist version of community land trust? Because it, I don't want it to just be about housing. I want it to start to decommodifying every aspect of our life in our city. And once again, that's not to say that we don't want decommodification to happen on the national level, right? Obviously, healthcare and education are immensely expensive. So we do need to cancel the debt. We do need to have Medicare for all. But the horizon for food and housing is something that I think in an anarchist sense is much better locally organized because it involves full participation of the community and because we know what's best in our community in terms of agriculture and housing. And so for me, when reading Cooperation Jackson's work with Rising, Jackson Rising is I realized, oh my gosh, this is actually a way to decommodify our cities and do the stuff I want to do in Occupy where we actually had power. So how long have you guys been going and uh, how big is it? We're a recent upstart. So we're planning a Michelada Festival, which is a great you know, uh, Mexican drink. And we're going to do it in Coachella, what part of the Inland Empire. And Inland Empire is comprised, I should say, of San Bernardino and Riverside County. And so we've, we're now a, a 51C3 as of May of 2020. So we're pretty recent, but um, we're already starting to get a lot of attention. And one of the things that we know that when we have power is we're going to have to start dealing with private land developers. And the more power we get, the more we're going to have to deal with them because city councils are owned principally by the carceral state, by the police unions, and which is not mentioned nearly enough. And then also by private land developers who basically buy those city council um, seats for uh, land development, you know, giving off the public good for private gain. And so we're going to run up to that as a problem. And since May, we, we are working for some low hanging fruit and some of it's pretty small and, but none, nonetheless meaningful. So we have a, a couple named Jesus and Annabelle who are living in Coachella city and they're immigrant middle-aged a couple and they're living in their van in Temperatures are insane here, especially now with climate chaos and 110 degrees living in their van. And we're doing fundraiser to get them housed. And we're doing small things because we have to start putting people in houses. It's kind of a catch-22. When you're a CLT, you have to house someone, but you don't have the money to build the houses. So you have to come up with uh, uh, 80 units or temporary housing shelters. But we don't want to do temporary shelter. We want to do permanent housing. And so what's interesting is because there's so few of these cumulant trusts across the country, I mean, there's more now, there's about 280, but that there's $300 million sitting in California's bank, the, the state government for cumulant trusts, because nobody does them, um, that money just sits there. So we do have access to money, but we have to start housing people. So what we're doing right now is moving to immediate emergency concerns. We're doing a fundraiser for 
uh, someone in in Yukaipa that um, w- does uh, window had a w- window washing business, but is now unemployed and is behind on the rent. And we have an eviction crisis going. And so what ends up happening is we're providing a solution at the very crisis that moment crisis moment where people are losing their houses because of the eviction. So we're in the right moment to do this. So uh, finally, um, if anybody's listening, uh, be interested in doing this sort of thing in their own community, what advice would you give them? Well, I'd have them check out the um, Community Land Trust Network, um, the website. It, it, there's a lot of how-to guides. And so what ends up happening with this is we can fundamentally um, organize. And there's seed money that you can get. And once again, you need to get municipal support at some at some point. So even in the most successful version with the Burlington Community Land Trust, you need to start working with the political system. And so it will involve electoral actions, but on the local level. So, um, and then getting activists together, getting community organized, because housing reaches all of our lives. And it's, there's no doubt that we have to have to make those changes. So uh, community housing network, um, uh, community land trust network, um, check that website. And then, you know, reach some of these um, organizations. They, they actually are, are quite helpful. They're very excited when they hear about another cooperative opening up. That was Matthew Snyder, a lecturer in the writing program at the University of California, Riverside, co-host of the podcast, The Future is a Mixtape, and one of the organizers of the Inland Empire Community Land Trust. You can find out more about the Inland Empire CLT at inlandequityclt.org, inlandequityclt.org. For general information about CLTs, including how to form one, check out community-wealth.org, community-wealth.org. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, Some of Not by Big Thief. I love this song, a series of negations, but it makes me worry I'm going soft. Till next week, bye.